Hello and welcome everyone to the North Davis Podcast, where we have conversations about faith in Jesus, what's going on in our lives, the world around us, and how those things all interact. I'm your host and friendly neighborhood youth minister, Chris. Thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. Listeners, welcome back to the ND Pod. This is episode six. Chris here. Uh, Bring a new segment that we're going to call Depolarize. Uh, This is something I borrowed from a podcaster I listen to fairly regularly who was interested in bringing Christians to the table with different viewpoints on different topics. And so, uh, inspired by that effort, I thought it would be good to have depolarizing conversations, uh, believer to believer, where we can take an issue, take a topic, and examine different viewpoints, and not in the interest of arguing and trying to convince uh, anybody of one view or the other, but to have good, honest, intellectual conversation about issues that often can uh, become divisive. Uh, Christians, we tend to get fussy on uh, different topics, and I think you know what I mean. We all have certain issues and and things that can get us um, fired up, and some of them are really worth getting fired up over and being passionate about and caring deeply about. Uh, Certainly, we see that in the character of Jesus, where he cared deeply about people, uh, the poor, being taken advantage of, for example, uh, in the temple courts, where you see him overturning tables. Um, uh, But just in the past year, we've watched people... um, Christians especially disagree on topics and and disagree not well and not have good conversations. Uh, And so we want to be able to be the kind of people who can uh, be thoughtful about topics and be thoughtful about uh, differing issues. And so, uh, again, we're going to do this uh, depolarized thing and examine uh, different topics through the lens of uh, our own faith, through the lens of history, what has uh, what has the church thought about these topics over time, and uh, different things like that? And I hope you'll find it interesting. So, uh, for day, we'll, uh, today we're going to call it a warm-up round, if you will. It's going to be a, a lighter topic uh, for some of you. Maybe uh, you might even be surprised that this would be something we could discuss on a depolarizing segment. But uh, grab Brett for a little bit, and we are actually going to record a conversation here about old hymns versus new. Now, if you've never heard that conversation and that argument, this may surprise you, but there are people that care really deeply about uh, how we worship and what style of music we prefer, uh, and and it really is a good conversation about worship and what it means and how we uh, go about deciding what music qualifies as good worship, and do we need to stick to our old hymns or new? So uh, enjoy this conversation between Brett and I. Hello, North Davis. Welcome back to the ND Pod. Today, uh, in the office slash studio, we have Brett, and we're going to talk a little old school versus new school, old hymns versus new worship music. And uh, Brett, of course, you have a lot of experience doing music, not just vocationally for the past 15 or so years, but also uh, singing uh, as a hobby, and, and you're participating in barbershop and things like vocal majority, and, and you just are constantly involved uh, in, in music. Uh, my experience with hymns versus 
new worship music and, and maybe that's even something we need to define is what what qualifies as a hymn versus uh, just a worship song and uh, do we prefer old hymns versus new hymns because my experience growing up was old hymns were what we sang in what we called big church when I was a teenager um, and that was for uh, the benefit of the older folks and then we would go to youth group and we would sing our songs which were the more recent you know like a Chris Tomlin or David Crowder um, and so that's that's my background as far as you know old hymns versus new um, but but what do you bring to the table as far as your experience well I did grow up in western Kentucky in a pretty conservative church. We sang only old hymns that came out of the, of course, most important great songs of the church. <laughs> so those of you great songs of the churchers out there, you would recognize 728B. So I'm very well versed in old hymns. Reference. Yes, our God, he is alive. Okay. And so actually, if you come to my office, yeah, there okay. is the on the other blue. Yes, yes that okay. one. Yeah. So that if you uh-huh. come to my office during the week on my door, you will see a, yes, a transparency of 728B, our God is alive. Y'all remember transparencies? Oh man, that's been a while. (laughs) I'm grateful for technology. We don't have to worry about somebody grabbing a transparency and putting it back on. Right. That was the day. And change out the overhead projector. Yes. Uh, So I kind of grew up in that environment. I I started leading worship. I mean, even as a 12 year old, I would help Mm. out with VBS singing, you know, if I were a butterfly and some of those kind of songs. Yeah. Yeah, a long time ago. Uh, but I would learn to to sing. We would have Sunday night singings where we would have, you know, a row of, you know, six or seven guys that would take turns leading worship, and I would go up and, mm-hmm. and do those kind of things as well. So I kind of grew up learning to do this, and that really translated into ministry. As I got into uh, college in a singing group, and we led worship in different places, as I got into being a youth intern to even a youth minister, um, worship was still a big, huge part of who I was. So, um, I can remember, again, a fairly conservative church, but maybe singing a few more of the newer songs. Um, I can remember our teens discovering some of the old hymns <laughs> and requ- on request night on Sunday night, requesting these old hymns that maybe you hadn't heard in forever, like the new song. Uh, for some of you church Christers, you probably recognize the that. News the news song? No, the new song. The new song. You know, okay. it thrills my soul to hear the songs of praise. Some of that Stamps Baxter type music. And so, yes, I don't know this. Yes, I'm I'm going to educate you today. This is I need it. uh, So after youth ministry, I went to Preston Road, which is in Dallas. Dallas. And uh, though they have a praise team and they have a lot of the newer songs, there was many people in that church that had a great appreciation for old hymns. Mm. And though I grew up and had an appreciation for old hymns, they wanted to make sure I had an appreciation. (laughs) So there was two or three of them that paid for me to go on an old hymn tour. And I got to go over to England and tour a lot of the sites for people like Francis Havergal and Isaac Watts and some of these great hymn writers of, you know, some of the classics that we sing, uh, probably more of the ones that we sing today are ones that I got to go to where they live, the churches that they went to, their grave sites, Hmm. and at their grave sites, or at their churches, we would sing the songs that they wrote. Oh, wow. And that was through Pepperdine University with a guy named Jerry Rushford, Dr. Jerry Rushford. Uh, Probably one of the greatest uh, trips I've been able to take, uh, especially one that was educational in nature. And uh, it really did help capture for me some of the the beauty of old hymns, though I 
already loved old hymns, mm -hmm. uh, just a more appreciation for that. But then being a youth minister, I, I, I had learned a lot of the, uh, the youth songs, which probably nowadays would be called camp songs. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll talk yeah. to you about a differentiation between some of those songs. But then as I got into worship ministry at Preston Road and then Vaughn Park and then now North Davis, I've really uh, seen the expanding of the acapella genre of worship being able to maybe have some of the newer songs that you might hear on the radio. And I love it when we sing a newer song and, you know, I've got a teen that says, oh man, I heard that on the radio mm -hmm. the other day. Yeah. And it just renews for me. It's worth the effort of learning these new songs because you've got people who maybe are newer to faith that have heard that before because they heard it on the radio. Right. And so I love doing some of the newer stuff, but yet I understand the argument of the old as well. Yeah. And when you say old, I'm just trying to think about some of the more famous hymns. So of course, like Amazing Grace comes to mind, one of the most famous hymns, which would have been written in the 19th century? Yeah, yeah, some, somewhere in the 1800s. So I, I will tell you how I categorize things. Yeah, so what time um, frame I've, are I we think I've got about? about four categories of songs. Mm -hmm. I've got old hymn, and when I say old hymn, I mean that basically predates 1900. Okay. Um, because once you get to 1900, then you get to really this church revival time. You get your stamps, Baxter. Th those are, uh, those are kind of a really interesting period of songs that really don't sound like anything else in all of church Where history. Where new stuff is being written. Yeah, new stuff is being written. Okay. I mean, even How Great Thou Art was ri written in like the 1950s. It's not necessarily something... Was it the 50s? Yeah, we don't consider okay. that... I don't consider it an old hymn, uh -huh. though a lot of people would. It's written in the mid-1950s. Okay, I didn't and then that you have this camp music... <laughs> <laughs> and that's things that really aren't written down. I, well, some of it's written down now, but I will call upon the Lord. Yeah. Or it only takes a spark to okay, get. That one. Some of these camp songs, a lot of them aren't written down on music anywhere. It's just things that hmm. were learned. There's lots of ideas of what the parts to those songs are. And do we know and, who wrote? Like you know, Some of them some we of do, them? some of them we don't. Yeah. Like I, I grew up singing, uh, at least in youth ministry, we learned this song. Uh, let's see, which one? was it it was uh and now my mind's gone blank i saw it on facebook somebody asking who mm. wrote the song right um and it's actually a friend of jeff's that actually has come to preach here once clint rhodes when he was in youth huh. ministry wrote the song and jeff will have to remind me what it is but uh, yeah. i just but there's these songs that we don't know who wrote them and we call them camp songs and the reason why i call them camp songs is because i've had many church members uh, not at this church specifically, but at other churches when we would sing too many of those camp songs. And oh. I just made the parentheses sound, by the way, uh, on Radio Land. <laughs> quote, unquote. Quote, unquote, camp songs. I yes. would get in trouble if I included too many camp songs. Okay. Um, and then you have your more contemporary stuff. And that's right. stuff CCM. that's written in maybe the, next, the last you know, 20, 30 years. And yeah. it's funny that we're saying something that was written 30 years ago is still new. But it's funny. Things like Shout to the Lord... I mean, that right. was written in the 90s. Was it? Or no, okay. you know, I think it was 2001. So, I mean, but relatively. But 90, young. it's. Yeah. But Mere decades that's becoming ago. an older song. Yeah. <laughs> it's not new anymore, and yet we would still probably call, call it a contemporary song. Sure. Compared to the vast. Yeah, the history vast majority. Of church music. Yeah. yeah. Do you know of any. Uh, you talked about anything, you know, pre 20th century, pre 1900 being considered old hymn. I'm racking my brain. Can you think of any songs that are pretty 
regularly part of our, our repertoire that go back way i'm talking like three digit year do, do we have any that mm. i'm just not thinking of or is it more like i'm thinking like kind of the modern era we would say is like 1604 i'm just imagining like bach and beethoven and yeah some of there's the, do we have any that we sing from probably not anymore there may be some that were based on like some old text that came back from okay pre then but most of it was Probably the earliest I can think of is a mighty fortress, which would have been written in like the 1500s, maybe. Okay. Um, so there's, but there's that's one. that's probably the oldest one that's in our hymn book. Yeah. Um, and then most of the stuff is you know 17, 1800s that was right. written. Kind of the golden era of hymn writing. I remember studying music theory. Took one course in high school, and we talked about the old you know monk way of writing music. And we said neumes, I believe they used to call their old notes. And looking at you know, of course, the church has been largely responsible in history for recording and writing music. Um, and so, why why is it that we don't have you know, or, or there's the Christ hymn in Philippians, for example. Why do you think we don't have songs from, is it just because we don't like singing like the monks of the fourth century? Or I think a lot of it, have that yeah, music? I think a lot of it just wasn't written down a whole lot. And sure. Uh, sure. the way that they sung back then is not the way we sing now. I mean, <laughs> yeah. we, we think that's of real. Church Christ and, you know, the four-part harmony. Well, that's what first century did. Well, no, that's not how they sang. Uh, mm-hmm. It was more, they, it was more antiphonal, same, tone, yeah. same tonal kind of things. Right. Um, you know, there became a point where it would be like reading a psalm, but you're singing it on the same note. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and there mm. might be some response by the church, some call and response, but no harmony. Changing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that I've done some research on this. I think harmony started to come in maybe in the 14th. 1300s, we started to see the introduction of harmony. And it wasn't really harmony, it was more of you would have, um, think of greatest commands like songs, where you would Mm -hmm. take a tune and you'd have another tune and they would kind of go on each other. Yeah, and it would make some harmony. Then you got to what you had antiphonal singing, where you're singing the kind of the same the same words at the same time uh, in harmony. And that's where we kind of get our stuff. But that that didn't come till way later on in, in church music and even regular music, uh, mm. to really. Um, more of that Gregorian chant, that's stuff that predates, yeah. you know, most of the stuff that we okay. do. Randy Harris, I don't know where you find it, but Randy Harris would occasionally show us he on his phone. That's what he would listen to is Gregorian <laughs> chant. So oh, yeah. I always found it interesting, but it definitely wouldn't have been my preference for worship. No. Um, and, and, and that's ultimately uh, one of the questions that we wanted to get to talking about depolarizing and, and trying to have conversations between two different schools of thought in Christianity. Um, again, the Gregorian chant, not my preference for worship, but in your experience um, in youth ministry and worship ministry, how much of choosing a lineup of songs? And of course you're working with, you know, Jeff here, for example, on lining up, music that fits thematically with a with a message and whatnot but how much of worship in your experience comes down to personal preference on style and what era it comes from versus um, a true you know theological take on um, the validity of a the new chris tomlin song versus this 19th century hymn you know what yeah, how much I, is that preference versus um i i think maybe um 
preference actually comes really into play when I think about it. Not necessarily my preference, but a church preference. Mm, um, yeah. As I have gotten to know churches, there are some, uh, one church may have this repertoire of songs that they love to sing. And when we, when I lead that, man, the church just sings out and loves the song. Well, yeah. if I find that that's the case, then I'm going to sing that. Mm. Um, whereas I came to maybe North Davis and I tried to sing something from another church that was a favorite. Okay. And all of a sudden I get this feeling of, I don't think they like this song. Yeah. And so, That's yes, there is some preference to it. Um, now, certainly I want to lead worship that is, you know, theologically sound. Um, I've been trying to think, is there any songs that I've cut because maybe of a theological yeah. issue? Um, there may be a verse here and there that I may not sing just because okay. it digs into something theologically that, uh -huh. ah, let's not go a there. Different. Um, there are times where I think the music is a little hokey compared to the lyric. Mm. Um, uh, the One of the classic examples I've used is the song, He Bore It All. Um, it's a great, such a great lyric. Yeah. He bore it like all so that I might live. Uh -huh. I mean, it's, and it's a very serious lyric, yeah. but whoever wrote the music decided that they wanted to put, I don't know what you would call this, but it's very hokey music. He bore it all that I might live, the Savior live. And it doesn't fit okay. the lyric. And so, it's a little bit more like a march. Yeah. Like and I, it, I, yeah. And I, it's almost like a, it's the music is happy. Yeah. But the lyric of the message is a very serious and more thought-provoking lyric, and so mm -hmm, the actual mm -hmm. music doesn't fit the lyric whatsoever. Yeah. So I generally don't lead that one. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have a strong feeling on, um, and I don't, I, I don't know that you can really divide it up this way, but, um, you know, think of when people like certain artists or don't, you know, they they might really prefer the music and not think about the words so much. Or some people really care deeply about the words. And if they can't understand them, then it doesn't matter how beautiful the music is. Do you have a particular sense of, of what you find to be more uh, worshipful, if that's a word I can use? <laughs> so being a singer, uh, you know, I have always loved harmony. And mm -hmm. I think there is a group of people uh, in any church that really the the harmonies and the beautiful melodies of the song really just kind of is a uh, kind of a portal for them to get into a worshipful atmosphere. And I think there's another group of people that may be more thinking uh, that really focuses in on the lyric. Mm -hmm. And I'm probably one that has leaned more towards the first. I love the beautiful harmonies and uh, all the harmonies that God has created. And I think those harmonies and the melodies all in themselves just speak of who God is. Mm. However, over time, I have really learned the value of lyric. And mm. so as I am worshiping, I'm really trying to, to hone in on what is it that I'm saying, because a lot of our music nowadays is not just stating theology, but it's really a conversation between you and God, mm. which is really more towards what worship is. Worship is a conversation between you and God and the people in God. It's not just stating a theological truth. I think there's value in that, and a lot of our old hymns are really deep theologically, right. so I don't think you get rid of them, but I do think there's value in the new stuff as well, where you're singing, I love you, Lord, mm -hmm. or, you know, God, you are good. And 
sometimes it's you, you it's a repetitious thing <laughs> you, yeah. you you've heard that many times yeah you know, them new songs they got 17 courses of three words i've heard people call them uh, 7-eleven songs 7-eleven you yes. sing seven words 11, 11 times. times yeah uh, but i've also found that in my own spiritual life that um i'm i'm sometimes hard to get things and it takes repetition for me sure. to get the message and so sometimes i need to say um it's your breath in mm. my lungs and I pour out my praise and I may not get that if I only sing it once sure. but if I've sung it 17 times that message really starts to sink in and then all of a sudden I'm in my car tomorrow mm. and I just start singing it's your breath yeah. in my lungs and I pour out my praise I pour out my praise it's your breath and I just keep singing it and singing it and becomes more of a prayer and mm. so yeah. um, do does every song need to do that probably not I think they're uh, I think there's value in the other, but boy, those repetition songs are important. Yeah. So what do you say to the person I'm imagining just at least in my line of work and my experience with teenagers, um, there are a few, um, I've heard them call it like eye roll songs, right? Where, <laughs> where, you know, they, it pops up on the screen and kids are just, Oh, I don't like this song. And, and it's not just teenagers. I imagine that we all have songs that, um, we just don't prefer for whatever reason. So, so how do you uh, handle that when you have conversations with people who just have a particular aversion to a song, uh, whether they prefer the hymns and they don't like the new stuff or, or vice versa? Um, what would you say to that person who takes issue with a song for whatever reason like that? <laughs> uh, I guess probably the harsh answer, the up forward answer <laughs> that I generally don't say is, look, worship's not about you. Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. it's not. It's about God, yeah. and yeah. if if worship is about you getting all your song choices, then we're getting worship wrong. Mm. Because worship mm -hmm. is about God and God only, and songs are only a method and a language that we speak to express what worship is about. Yeah. Uh, but really, when I come back to it and, and soften those <laughs> those words, um, it's really more based in loving one another. And I know that I may not like a particular song, but I know that, you know, that person, you know, three rows away, that that song means something special to them. Maybe I just don't understand that lyric, but that might be a lyric that was sung at that person's dad's funeral, spouse's funeral. Yeah. And because of that, I lead it. Um, you know, one of the perfect examples, um, I loved David Hobby. Um, and I don't think you got to know him. No. Uh, he, he predates you. It's Karen Hobby's husband who okay. passed away. Mm -hmm. And one of his favorite songs was Sing and Be Happy. And it would be considered probably what we call a campy song. Sure. Um, and it was sung at his funeral. Mm. And when we do an old hymn sing, um, I, I want to lead that one. Um, I like the song, but it's for some people it's probably campy but that's a beautiful song and it has meaning and because it has meaning to somebody I'll sing it all day long uh, if I know that it's helping someone else worship and I know that that ministers to someone like Karen Hobby and the Hobby family that know that was special to David I do it in honor of David um, and there are so many other songs like that um, there's songs that I probably wouldn't lead too much 
um, in our worship experience because our church doesn't know the song well, but I know it's an old hymn that my dad sang. And mm. when that old hymn is sung, I knew that's, that's the one my dad would always lead on Sunday nights. And because my dad's yeah. gone, it brings back and it's a special moment of worship or a, a special moment of worship that we had. Uh, the song, I Will Never Be the Same, was yeah. there's a special story for that one for me where a rainstorm, a big thunderstorm, knocked out all the power all over our camp at Palma Baba Camp in South okay. Carolina. And we were supposed to be having this big uh, kind of concert that we were doing, mm. and it totally ruined the whole moment. And we, we couldn't take kids to their cabin because there were tornado warnings out, and right. we were all stuck in this one place. Mm -hmm. It was a metal roof. It was raining down. Yeah. And uh, we had just learned that song. And... Um, and so I just got up, had a lantern, and there were about 200 of us in the room, yeah. um, open air room, so the rain coming down, and I started leading that song, mm -hmm. and the whole room just overpowered the rain, and it's probably one of the most emotional worship experiences of my life, and it was, I will never be the same. And so yeah. when I sing that song, oh man, it, it brings back so many incredible memories of how the Spirit worked in that room that night. So yeah. Music has story to it, mm. um, and not just story of how they were written, but story and how they've worked in the lives of so many people. So when you're singing a song that you don't love, realize that there's a story behind that song that has moved people all throughout this world, yeah. and that when we participate in singing any song, that we are participating in the glorification of God, but, in, um, but also in the turning of lives towards God. Yeah. You use the word emotion there and, and story, um, one of the most fundamental parts of the human experience, right? To have story and experiences that evoke strong emotions. And for a lot of us, we do have uh, songs, be they secular or worship music, that, that are connected to our story. Um, but, but there's at least been... Uh, and I imagine most of us that have grown up in church have had the experience at one time or another of being told uh, either explicitly or perhaps um, just implied that, that, that worship should be very formal and very non-emotional. Um, so what, what would you say to the person that um, struggles to... Uh, get into the music maybe is the phrase I want to use. You know, um, certainly there are elements of worship in uh, our modern world that are performative and people uh, don't like because they feel too concert-like, for example, might be a criticism somebody would have. Um, but there's got to be a middle ground where we can allow ourselves to feel the feelings we feel about worship because it's connected to a loved one who's passed or uh, an experience like that at camp. We, we are emotional storytelling beings. Um, so how do we uh, encourage one another to um, feel the things we feel in worship and, and, and not clamp down on, on that? Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, that's based really in my theology of worship. And that is that worship is not... One, it's not a particular time of the week. Mm. It's not Sunday morning at 10, 15 a.m. That is not what worship is. Worship is something that happens at all moments or can happen at all moments. It is our response to God for who he is, for what he's done for us, and our response to him is worship. And so that can be in many things. It doesn't have to be just at a 10, 15 worship service. But also worship is not compartmentalized to 
our minds. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's not just a mental exercise that we do to check off a box that, okay, I did this thing that God said I was supposed to do, but this is something that encompasses heart, soul, strength, and mind. It's, it's a, a holistic thing that we do that's a response. So yes, it includes our mind, but it includes our emotions, it includes our physicality. Um, you know, I talked to our worship team uh, about engaging the people that are in the room because, and what the way I say it is, I don't want you to act, I don't mm. want you to perform, yeah. but I want your face to reflect your worshipful heart. It's yeah. a, it's a yeah. physical response to what's going on in the heart. And I believe that physically when we worship, I think that when we physically express our worship, that it encourages one another. And really, that's our worship goes up to God, but also our expressions of worship in community uh, from the scriptures that we find um, are to encourage one another. And so not only are we giving our worship to God, but it's an encouragement to one another. So when we show our emotions when we're vulnerable, when we uh, physically can show our worship, um, it's an encouragement. It's, uh, in some ways, it's even evangelistic to those who mm. may, I mean, if they just see kind of dead faces that <laughs> um, are just mouthing words, you yeah. know, it looks like there's just an empty shell there repeating words. Mm. Um, if you can allow yourself, your emotions and your body to replicate what hopefully is going on in your heart, worship right. to God, right. um, it's a holistic experience that is um, encouraging to one another. It's evangelistic. It draws others in. And ultimately, it's what God desires is our whole selves to be put into worship. As far as the whole, sometimes we pluck out this decently in order and uh, <laughs> passage to, yes. to get around. We got to have decent in order in our worship. Well, if we go back and look at what worship was like, by the way, we don't have a worship service from beginning to end ever dictated in scripture. Right. We just kind of have plucked little things here and there to right. figure out what we have. Little parts where yeah. they're addressing specific yeah. issues. But, but this, we get a little idea here and there, and mm -hmm. it looks like even in the Corinthian church, Paul saying, yeah, when one of you have a hymn, you bring a hymn. If you right. have a song, you bring a, a song, or you bring a, a word, or you bring prophecy, a tongue, or a tongue, prophecy, yep, or something, yep. and you bring that. And he's saying, keep that kind of in order, but he's sure. not, not saying... Chaos, but it's not chaos, but it seems like different people brought their giftedness mm. and used that to praise the Lord. Yeah. And, you know, certainly needs to be a rhyme and reason to how we do things uh, for sure, right. But uh, there is a spirit moving within all of that. Yeah. And so you point back to Corinthians as we uh, wrap up our time together this afternoon, I'm reminded of the different cultures, even within just Western American culture of all the different churches I've had the opportunity to worship at um, and all the different events I've had the opportunities to worship at. And depending on who I was with, there was a very different subculture of what was expected, what was accepted. And so I, I think of all the times I've been super judgmental in my heart about the person who was jumping up and down during a worship song uh, or who was spinning and dancing. Um, and, and so um, how do we, as people that want to worship our God, and we have this extreme human desire to also be comfortable, but we notice things that are different and unusual. 
right? And so in others, we see people doing something that's unusual. You know, for some of us, people that raise their hands in worship is weird. For some of us, clapping hands is not uh, part of our normal. So how do we both worship our God w- without acting, like you said, um, and, and be in community without being distracted by everything else that's going on? Uh, because we're ultimately all there for the same reason on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or wherever we are. Um, how do we... How do we do that as human beings that are so distracted? Um, how do we lean into the way that different people engage with the divine? Um, I think the word's humility. Mm. I think that oftentimes we feel like we've got the corner of the market on, uh, we know how the right way to do this. Well, um, who's to say there's not many right ways? Yeah. Um, you, you don't go to Africa or Denmark or Australia or China and you do the same exact thing and get the same exact result. Right. You know, you, depending on the culture and sometimes it's even the culture of the community itself. So the way we worship at North Davis may not be the way that people need to worship down the street Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. there's a little bit different of a culture of a people, but also we need to consider the culture that's around us. I mean, we are planted where we are, Mm -hmm. so we don't need to be trying to reach people in Fort Worth when we're planted here in North Arlington. We don't need to try to worship in a way that's going to um, appease people in Nebraska, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) in northern Nebraska, when we need to minister to people that live in a metroplex in Arlington, in this city, in this demographic, and we figure out what that is, and that's who we're trying to reach. Yeah. And we've got to speak a language that um, that the people of this community are going to understand. And obviously, the people that are already here play a part into our language as well. And that's certainly considered, and certainly as you look at how we worship, it's mm-hmm. very much a makeup of who we are as a people. Yeah. Um, but the humility to know that the way we do it is not the only way to do it. Yeah. And... Um, just because we do it that way doesn't mean that the way somebody else does it is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I'd hard press you to find scripture that, uh, matter of fact, I would say that probably the way we worship, there's a lot of things that you don't find in scripture. You don't find anywhere in scripture that it's commanded to sit down and worship. Um, mm. There are all kinds of postures in worship that are commanded or uh, suggested that we do. Not one, one of them is sitting. Never it's standing, sit. like <laughs> prostrate, raising hands, clapping hands, yeah, we uh, don't dancing, do thing you know. <laughs> I mean, you find all of those things in Scripture yeah. and related kneeling and related to right? yeah. all of that. Not sitting, it's nowhere in there, but the, nah, uh, that's yeah. one of the ways we love to worship. That's funny, we, I've never we, heard we, that. We like to sit and observe, yeah. uh, and yet that's mm. not in Scripture. Observe, yeah. <laughs> I'm reminded of, uh, and we'll, we'll close here, but uh, do you, are you familiar with David Crowder's work? Mm-hmm. He's got a song called Undignified. Do you? Okay. So I, I, yeah, I know. It's a spinoff of the, the text in, uh, I imagine it's Second Samuel, uh, where David is celebrating the return of the Ark of the Covenant and his wife, uh, Michael. Uh, I say Michael because yeah. I'm a Western. That's uh, fine. Michael, or I don't yeah, know how you would say it in Hebrew. It. But he is like stripped off his outer robe and is dancing around the Ark with, with celebrating, mm-hmm. you know. And she's like, um, you're the king. You can't, you can't praise the Lord like that, you know. And he says, I will become even more undignified than this, you know. And there's mm-hmm. that that freedom that he feels, uh, you know, this man of, of famous worship writer of a lot of our Psalms and whatnot. And, um, so it's, it's kind of interesting to think, yeah, so much of our, 
seated worship is uh, very absent versus singing, dancing, raising hands, everything you just mentioned. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's and, really and I think that's about. and I think that's why Paul focuses on the heart. Mm. I, anywhere that you find in the New Testament, him talking about worship or singing or preaching or any of that, he always goes back to the heart. And it's really a message that Jesus had. It's, it's less about getting all of the I's dotted and the T's crossed exactly the same way all across the world, but it's about whatever expression of worship that you have, it's important that the heart is correct yeah. and that the heart is worshipful. Um, if you're singing an old song or a new song, if you're sitting down, standing up, clapping or dancing or whatever it is that you're doing to worship God, as you do that, if your heart is focused in on responding to a creator who loves you, then you are worshiping God. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for thinking through that with us a little bit this afternoon and, and talking about worship. We'll catch you next time. See you.